thank you for listening to Mapping the Zone, a podcast that is normally dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pynchon. Uh, over the course of our break between finishing Mason and Dixon and starting to read Vineland, we have decided to, to sort of fill that space with four individual bonus episodes, five technically if you count the one that's already gone out, uh, right after we finished recording the reading of uh, Is It Okay to Be a Luddite? Just so you guys continue to have something to listen to. And in case you're one of our listeners who has particularly enjoyed our sort of random discussion topics that are included at the end of each episode, here's sort of more of that, but maybe a bit more directed was the idea here. Um, last week, we heard from Cody talking about one of his his favorite video games. And this week, uh, we are going to hear from yours truly, Kate, the fourth member of the podcast. Um, and I am recounting one of my favorite books of all time. And that would be Our Wives Under the Sea by Julia Armfield. Um, I don't believe anyone else on this show has read this book, if I remember correctly. It has been on my radar for I, almost as long as it's been since it came out. I think it was like 2022, right? Last uh, year? I want to say she published it either yeah early 2022 or late 2021 okay she also she also has a book of short stories called salt slow that i would recommend but yeah no i i have not read it either and again it's it's been on my list but not gotten around to it yet yeah i haven't read it i'm excited that it's on so many people's lists hopefully this discussion can uh raise it up to a higher place on said lists much like the one last week helped Will raise up his ranking of when he's going to play near Automata. I believe somewhere to the mid-600s was the number he gave. Yeah. Um, for those who do not know, Our Wives Under the Sea uh, is a book written by the British author Julia Armfield. Um, it is her debut novel-length uh, piece of fiction. She, as I had just mentioned, previously had a collection of short stories published called Salt Slow, and she has done a handful of essay writing in various places online in particular she has an essay on body horror as a concept um, both in in movies and books and other mediums and her own experience with body horror in real life that i would highly recommend everyone listen to it's fascinating and it also informs some interesting backstory i'll say to what julia was thinking about as she started composing this novel um Julia Armfield, as I mentioned, is an English writer. Um, she was born in London. She has a master's in Victorian art and literature from the Royal Holloway University. And she was uh, shortlisted in 2019 Sunday Times Award for Young Writer of the Year. She was also longlisted for the Deborah Rogers Award in 2018. And she won the White's Review Short Story Prize in 2018. Um, and then she won the Pushcart Prize in 2020 as well for a piece of short fiction that, if I remember correctly, is collected in Salt Slow. That's a place where you can read that. Um, Our Wives Under the Sea is a hard novel to classify from a standpoint of genre because there are elements of it that are body horror. There are elements of it that are almost cosmic horror, not necessarily in the implications of what is being described, like you would have with a Lovecraft or like A Fisherman by John Langan, or any of the books that fit more squarely into that genre. 
Um, it, it is also more or less just a piece of literary fiction as well. It, so it, it lies in a in a in a difficult to classify sort of subsection of literature. And part of the reason why I wanted to mention this book is because I feel like it lies squarely in a subsection of literature that is currently emerging within the marketplace of, of literary fiction. Um, I don't believe there has been any formal scholarship or writing about this genre or kind of emerging movement in literature, so I can't point you guys to anything in particular, unfortunate, unfortunately. Perhaps I'll have to write an essay about this or something, I don't know. But what I have noticed over the past, I'll say, three to five years... On a, on a conservative and liberal estimation of time, is there is a subset of mostly young women who are writing debut novels or close to debut novels that all occupy similar thematic spaces to one another. And I say thematic spaces because the actual content of the book from a genre perspective can change widely and vary quite a bit, but the actual intent, I'll say, of the novels is is similar. And most of these books seem to revolve around women, but it's not always women, uh, as protagonists and as primary characters in the novel, trying to reconcile with their life experience or the meaning of something that they have gone through um, or potentially trying to put portions of their life into something contextual in regards to the rest of their surroundings and how it is that they've ended up in the position that they've ended up in. And a lot of these books have deep analysis about relationships or sexuality and sex in general or about uh, childhood or difficulties in adulthood or family life, things like that. So there is this widely expanding canon of, again, mostly young, mostly debut novels, um, debut novels by young writers who are mostly women, that seem to be operating in this thematic realm, which I find very interesting because, again, I don't feel as though anyone has really commented on this in particular. Um, most people, for example, will be aware of an author by the name of Otessa Moshveg. Otessa Moshveg is one of my favorite authors working today, and she is probably the most prominent author writing material like this. And it's probably also potentially, if I was to put together a loose timeline in my head, potentially one of the authors who started this sort of trend. Um, Certainly not with her debut novel, Eileen, although that counts. I would say she started doing it when she was writing short fiction, mostly for the Paris Review, which is collected in an edition of work that you can read called Homesick for Another World. And if I was to theorize, as those were being published alongside some of the other early works of fiction being added to this, I'll, I'll use the haughty word of canon, that other... Um, you know, young women were being inspired by that and wanted to to eventually add to that canon when they were seeking publishing houses for their first manuscripts or potentially even just drafting their first manuscripts. I don't know how many of these authors really know each other. Um, I know Julia Armfield is very good friends with Eliza Clark, 
who is an author some of you may recognize the name of because she wrote a book called Boy Parts that was mm-hmm. very highly uh, lauded when it came out, and for absolutely good reason. I would highly recommend everyone read Boy Parts as well. I would also say that Boy Parts counts as one of the books in this canon. So there is some overlap between these authors, but largely they seem to be mostly disparate women from different experiences that have not yet been categorized or lumped together into this into this grouping. But looking more squarely to Julia Armfield and arriving at Our Wives Under the Sea, we have uh, a novel that is about, and this is where it becomes difficult to describe, because there is not an easy way to necessarily describe the storyline without simply telling you what happens. But how it is that I ordinarily describe this novel to people is that it is about a relationship that is over and both members of that relationship have yet to admit that it is over. And as one of them begins to understand that this relationship is is done with and is waiting out sort of the death process of the relationship. She is trying to make sense of the relationship as a whole, her mother's passing years prior, and how that relates to this relationship and sort of the end of its life, and trying to find some way to go through a grieving process when that person is occupying the same house as her and that she is simply wanting things to go back to normal. Um, it is a devastating novel. It's, it's very short, so you can get through it very fast, but it is one that no matter how many times I read it or revisit sections from it, and it's a book that I've revisit sections from often, it makes me just like sob uncontrollably at certain passages that I'll go back and revisit because of the incredible impact of Julia Armfield's writing. And if you're someone who has dated seriously uh, or potentially been close to marriage only for that not to work out, you will recognize a lot of the symptoms of these relationships that don't work out or are starting to reveal themselves as, as, as not long for this world from things that you've experienced in your own life. But in this book, there is an undercurrent of a supernatural or otherworldly element to it, which adds this additional level of, of tragedy, because it isn't just two people growing apart. It's two people being forced to grow apart because one of the partners is changing and uh, doing so against her will. The book is told from two different perspectives. It, it, it is a lesbian relationship between a woman named Leah and a woman named Miri. And the book alternates between their POVs as they narrate uh, forward in time from sort of the end of the relationship. The, the end of the relationship beginning is the best description that I can, I can give. And then from Leah's perspective, how she slowly arrived to where Miri's perspective at the beginning of the book starts. Um, and so if you'll indulge me, I just want to give you a taste of both of the narrators, just to kind of read out a bit of the book in general. I'll wait for these sirens to pass. It adds ambience, though. 
It sure does. I'm living in a city. Oh, it's a fire, fire truck. Uh, the book begins with a quote from Moby Dick. And the quote that it pulls is, Consider the subtleness of the sea, how its most dreaded creatures glide underwater, unapparent for the most part, and treacherously hidden beneath the loveliest hints of Asia. Consider also the devilish brilliance and beauty of many of its most remorseless tribes, as the dainty, embellished shape of many species of sharks. Consider, once more, the universal cannibalism of the sea, all whose creatures prey upon each other, carrying on eternal war since the world began. Consider all this, and then turn to the green, gentle, and most docile earth. Consider them both, the sea and the land. And do you not find a strange analogy to something in yourself? For as this appalling ocean surrounds the verdant land, so in the soul of man there lies one insular Tahiti, full of peace and joy, but encompassed by all the horrors of the half-known life. God keep thee. Push not off from that isle. Thou canst never return. And then it's followed up by a quote from Jaws, where it says there's a clinical name, name for it, isn't there? Drowning. And then... The book begins with Miri, and this is just a taste of sort of what her narration is kind of like. The deep sea is a haunted place, a place in which things that ought not to exist move about in the darkness. Unstill is the word Leah uses, tilting her head to the side as if in answer to some sound. Though the evening is quiet, dry hum of the road outside the window and little to draw the ear besides. The ocean is unstill, she says. Farther down than you think. All the way to the bottom, things move. She seldom talks this much or this fluently. Legs crossed and gaze towards the window, the familiar slant of her expression, all her features slipping gently to the left. I'm aware by now that this kind of talk isn't really meant for me, but is simply a conversation she can't help having the result of questions asked in some closed-off part of her head. What you have to understand, she says, is that things can thrive in unimaginable conditions. All they need is the right sort of skin. We're sitting on the sofa, the way we have taken a doing in the evenings since she returned last month. In the old days, we used to sit on the rug, elbows up on the coffee table like teenagers, eating dinner with the television on. These days, she rarely eats dinner, so I prefer to eat mine standing up in the kitchen to save on mess. Sometimes she will watch me eat, and when she does, I chew everything to a paste and stick my tongue out until she stops looking. Most nights we don't talk. Silence like a spine through the new shape of our relationship is taken. Like most nights. After eating, we sit together on the sofa until midnight and then I tell her I'm going to bed. When she talks, she always talks about the ocean, folds her hands together, and speaks as if declaiming to an audience quite separate from me. There are no empty places, she says, and I imagine her glancing at cue cards, clicking through slides. However deep you go, she says, however far down, 
you'll find something there. I used to think there was such a thing as emptiness, that there were places in the world one could go and be alone. This, I think, is still true, but the error in my reasoning was to assume that alone was somewhere you could go, rather than somewhere you had to be left. So those are the opening couple of paragraphs from our first narrator, Miri, and then the opening couple of paragraphs from our second narrator, Leah, starts as such. Did you know that until very recently, more people had been to the moon than had died beyond depths of 6,000 meters? I think about this often. The inhospitableness of certain places. A footprint, once left on the surface of the moon, might in theory remain, as it is almost indefinitely, uneroded by atmosphere, by wind or by rain. Any mark made up there could quite easily last for several centuries. The ocean is different. The ocean covers its tracks. When a submarine descends, a number of things have to happen in a fairly short span of time. Buoyancy is entirely dictated by water pushing up against an object with a force proportional to the weight of the water that the object has displaced. So when a submarine sits at the surface, its ballast tanks are filled with air, rendering its overall density less than that of the surrounding water, and thereby displacing less of it. In order to sink, those ballast tanks have to be filled with water which is sucked into the vessel by electric pumps as the air is simultaneously forced out. It's a curious act of surrender, when you think about it, the act of going under. To drop below the surface is still to sink. However, intentionally, the simple matter of taking on water, just as drowning, only requires you to open your mouth. Miri used to call these my sunken thoughts tapping on the base of my skull with the flat of her hand when I grew quiet, frowning at some thought I was chasing in circles. How'd they get so far down there? She'd say. Next thing you know, they'll be halfway down your neck. When she did this, I would often catch her palm and keep it there, take her other hand and hold it to my temple, as though surrendering, surrendering the responsibility of keeping my head in one piece. And that's where we have the second narration. And so picking up from context clues, you may have pieced together that Leah is a member of a submarine crew, and she goes on an expedition to uh, very near the bottom of the sea. We're not really told for what, other than scientific research. And what was supposed to initially be a trip that lasted, I believe, two weeks, uh, lasts for four or five months. And Miri can't get a hold of the people who are sponsoring the expedition or in charge of it. She can't get any answers as to what's going on. And then eventually, one day, sort of like the husband in Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer, Miri just returns. But she's clearly not the same as she was when she left. And why that is and what unfolds over the rest of the novel, I will leave to the listeners to experience for themselves should they decide to read it. But it is an utterly impressive work of fiction. It's, it's in my top 10 books of all time. And I think it is, is an exemplary piece of work that showcases what this kind of emerging canon of literature really can accomplish when it is done to the best of its you know, possibilities. Yeah, so like I said, I've this this book has been on my radar for a while. 
Um, I, I mean, I say a while, like I said, since it came out um, last year. So it's, and I, I don't really have a specific reason that I haven't picked it up other than I think I've mentioned before on the show that I'm, my, my wife pointed out not too long ago that I'm a, I'm a mood reader. So I have to be in the right <laughs> sort of mindset to read certain things. Um, and, and I know that this, this is, you know, this book is obviously dealing with some heavy, um, some heavy themes and, and topics. Um, I think, and, and, you know, by no means am I dismissing the the book and I, I'm sure I know the answer to this question, but, um, I think with, with a lot of, of horror based stories that I, that I read that are more, that are more than just, you know, let's write a scary story to, to tell a scary story that have something more going for them. Um, I, I tend to find that the, the horror itself kind of overshadows or outweighs the actual, um, the plot or the, the theme that the, the author is trying to get at. It doesn't sound like that's the case here. It sounds like she's she struck a really good balance between, um, you know, still telling the story that she wants to tell, but utilizing these horror elements in a way that that really supports the story that's being told. Um, that's I mean, at least that's what it sounds like from your your kind of description of it. But um, it's so I, I think that kind of encourages me a little bit more because I think maybe that was one of the things at the back of my head. Um, was that it was going to focus more on the, the, the horror and, and the, the, you know, that kind of unknown. And, and I'm glad you mentioned annihilation because that one kind of does the same thing. It really balances horror very, very well with the actual storytelling and, and getting across the themes that it's trying to get across. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would say that to the extent that this book is horror or has horror elements, it's very few and far between like, like the elements or the, the, scenes in this novel that are outright horror i there's maybe four of them um most of the the horror or the supernatural aspect of what's going on is delivered more in a way of a loved one taking care of another loved one who is going through a process of death mm-hmm. and the fear and heartbreak and you know absolute just sort of gut-wrenching terror that that person is is no longer who they are um you know the main character miri's mother it's never explicitly said what she died of but it seems like it was probably alzheimer's and so if you've had anyone in your life that has gone through that particular sickness like i have you know that the worse it gets the more that they kind of stop seeming like a person which which may sound harsh but just as they begin to continue to lose faculties and their ability to just sort of you know operate their day-to-day life like any other person does it, it almost feels as though they they start to become something else and the the person that you knew before that disease sort of took hold of them is slowly disappearing it, it, it's more mm-hmm. like that than I would say it is like any outright horror. There are some elements of, of just absolute, it it just, yeah, just horror, like like horrifying elements do come up. There's one scene in particular about halfway through the book. The book is, is subdivided into 
sections based upon the names for the zones of the ocean. Um, And at the close of, I want to say, like, that the midnight zone before it goes into Haddle zone or vice versa, there is a scene that terrified me. And that's not a reaction that I have to many things, but just the way that Julia Armfield writes what is happening physically with Leah and how strange and mildly otherworldly it is mixed with all of this writing that she's done before then of watching this woman slip away from her own consciousness and her own body. It's, 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 yeah, it's nothing short of terrifying as a scene. But I would certainly say that those are not the primary elements of the book. The primary elements of the book are this, are these thoughts and themes of a relationship that is over, but nobody has admitted that it is yet, and what it is like to watch a loved one die, um, and the things that, that, that go along with that, and the thoughts that it prompts from the survivor of that relationship, either whether it's a breakup or, or a widowing situation, um, that, that happen in the partner who will continue on. I think, so I, I, I mean, I want to read this more now after, <laughs> after you talked about it, because it, it, it reminds me of so the two books I'm thinking of right now off the top of my head that I've, I've recently read and, and are based on your description are kind of thematically similar are uh, yeah. the memory police by Yoko Ogawa mm-hmm. um, and Chouette by uh, Clara Shetsky. Mm-hmm. Um, both are, uh, memory police is, is more in line with what we were just talking about kind of at the end about that kind of like losing someone slowly um, mm-hmm. to a disease and, and the, the kind of horror that's baked into that. Um, Chouette is more in line with, I think what you were talking about earlier um, with the, it, it's that one. I will just say it's about a woman who has a baby. That's also kind of an owl. Uh, and it's like, okay. it's almost like a racer head. Um, okay, sure. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's, that's, that's what it's making me think of, but, um, it's, yeah, I, I like that, that idea that, uh, that that's how it's approaching its horror storytelling. Cause, yeah. um, I don't think there's enough good examples of that, um, out there. So it's, it's good to know that there is this one. And like I said, it's been on my radar for a while, so I need to go get it. Definitely. Yeah. I, I have read memory police. I have not read Chouette, but memory police is certainly more, overtly depressing than that was a heavy ass book yeah our wives under the sea is i remember when i finished memory police just kind of like sitting in my chair and just going and then just sort of like trying to reconcile what how that book was yeah um yeah you know certainly uh our wives under the sea has a similar you know devastation that washes over you but instead of it being outright depressing there is also a emotional catharsis in both Miri and the reader by the final pages of the, the willingness to accept what you have to let go of and how you can carry those things forward in your life to make sense of them and to, to, to better contextualize your, your life experience. Um, so yeah, while, while it's absolutely still, there's some depressing stuff in there. Like I said, the last five pages of this book, when I first read it, like I was on the phone 
with my girlfriend at the time who recommended it to me and i was just weeping um as i read it and that continued for for like 15 minutes <laughs> after oh, wow. i after i closed it so it it is it is heavy but it's not it's not just heavy from from a grief standpoint it's also heavy from like understanding where miri has gotten to by mm-hmm. the by the end of the book and how this this experience has transformed her have yeah, you read sorry, any Oh. You go ahead. You go ahead, Luke. Okay. Sounds good. Have you read any uh, Kelly Link? I don't believe I'm familiar. Kind of horror adjacent stuff. Um, your description of the book did kind of remind me of the way that she writes. I haven't read a lot of Kelly Link. Um, I did read her novella, Skinder's Veil, uh, which is in, so, like, in a lot of ways very different, I think. But it did kind of... In some ways, remind me of of the like. There's a feeling of like it's. Um, I'm having trouble kind of verbalizing it, but it, it just kind of reminded me of Kelly Link in some ways. So I was just curious. Yeah, no, I I haven't I have not uh, heard of her work. I I will have to look her up. You should her uh, her novella Skinder's Veil. Like I said, I came across it in a, uh, a best of uh, 2022. Um collection that i guess skinder's veil was collected in a in a uh collection of novellas inspired by shirley jackson oh um, okay yeah and it's 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 probably the best uh novella i've ever come across um and she does have a a literary magazine that i uh i submitted to and stuff that does look really interesting but She's award-winning. Um, I want to say she's a little bit more prominent than maybe um, you might think. But yeah. Yeah, thank you for the recommendation. I'll have to look her up. Yeah, all I was going to say is I, I don't have any specific questions, and it doesn't mm-hmm. remind me of any particular works that I've I've read. I mean, there are, th- there are general things, and I like what I hear, but um, <laughs> I don't have any questions. I'm just uh, very curious in general. Yeah. Would, now more likely to read it, and uh, it's probably you know it's up there in the the probably the mid sixties, you know. Okay. Awesome. So, not sixties. <laughs> uh, sorry, six hundred sixties. Six hundred. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I do appreciate all of this. It's interesting. Yeah. Not that I imagine this is going to push it above the the sixties, but for any of our audience members who may be lesbians or other uh women loving women um types of people uh as a fellow lesbian myself uh as as an intersex woman who has only dated other women um this book has the best depiction of any uh wlw relationship of anything that i have read and when i say best depiction i don't necessarily mean like the most interesting or like the steamiest if we're going by that that standpoint or sort of like i enjoyed the depiction the most but from the standpoint of the most accurate just existing in the heads of these two characters as they navigate being married to one another and telling the story of them like dating and and getting together and the reaction of their friends and the people around them um it it's it's the most accurate i've ever seen of of a of a depiction of what it's like to be in in a a lesbian relationship so if that helps uh add additional intrigue to any of our listeners ears that is definitely um 
an additional reason to pick it up. And it, it is likely that way because Julia Armfield herself is a lesbian. Um, and she, she writes very honestly about the experience of, of, of dating in that world, which I appreciated the inclusion of as well. It's not glamorized. It's just very honest. That's nice. You know, as a, as a straight man, um, <laughs> I'm qualified to judge the, the genre. Yeah. But I do, I would, I would, it, it is generally my favorite subgenre of romance for some reason. And it's nothing lascivious, I promise all the listeners. Mm -hmm. It's just like, I, I just find it generally more interesting than most of the, 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 you know, straight per se or other forms of romance stories. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I, I would agree, but I'm also probably very biased in that respect. <laughs> um, you mentioned her short stories. Um, I did. Is there, I mean, it, does she have a sort of, um, I guess, uh, genre that she, does she, I, I guess, do, are her short stories in the same kind of genre as, as this, or are they exploring other um, genres and themes? They're more varied, like okay. cer certainly Our Wives is a distinct work. Um, she is not operating in this this constant, you know, frame of reference of, of horror mixed with like tragedy or heavily emotional um, sort of experiences in life. I would say Salt Slow is more... Um, more squarely within that that canon of ideas about you know like women and their experiences in the world and society um and and what those mean and like trying to make contextual sense of them that, that's a huge part of what salt slow is from a thematic perspective um i would also say there's a lot of interesting things in that collection about like women's bodies and our relationship to our bodies and that relationship to the world around us and things like that um there there's one in in particular uh where it, there's a there's a story about insomnia that comes close in some respects to okay. to our wives under the sea that i really enjoyed um but it, it it is a bit more varied like she she definitely isn't just looking to write stuff in the same vein she she has a lot to say i'll keep an eye out for salt slow cuz i have not seen it at any of the bookstores i usually go to i've seen our wives under the sea a few times and i i i kick myself now for not having picked it up yeah you should yeah <laughs> i know i know i've been bad about that yeah um but i'm gonna i'll have to recommend this to my wife too she likes um she's the one that got me onto chouette and mm. um i think this would be up her alley too so i'm curious to see what she thinks about it all let you know if i can get her to read it she's busy with a lot of other books that she has to read but um i'm curious if she's i mean this yeah because it came out in 2022 i'm curious if she's gonna have anything else coming out anytime soon she's working on another book right now okay um, that's good yeah so she has the collection published and then she has our wives under the sea she has another book coming out called private rights um that does not have a cover and also okay. does not have a release date um hmm. But it is, it would appear to be another um, sort of queer love story. Um, beyond that, there has not been a whole lot of details revealed, at least that I know of. Mm -hmm. uh, it's possible that something has been revealed since the last time I looked it up. Um, as far as like other books that exist in kind of this 
sort of emerging section of literature in case people are interested in just like learning more about it or you know maybe i'm wrong maybe maybe i'm crazy for thinking that all these things have stuff in common and and you'll read all of these books too and then you can email the show and be like hey kate's off her rocker um <laughs> she's she's crazy uh what i would recommend taking a look at would be the work of otessa moshveg uh definitely um as much as uh there was a whole meme culture and big push around my year of rest and relaxation i would highly recommend people instead read uh death in her hands i think that's a significantly uh better book and that's existing within the realm of of you know my year of rest and relaxation being an incredible book um and just has a lot of very interesting things to say about being a woman and living life and when you look back on your life wondering how things went the way they did and what makes sense there uh boy parts by eliza clark would definitely be another one to look up i would also recommend looking up the work of uh, jenny vial i think that's how it's pronounced h-v-a-l um she is a i believe norwegian but potentially somewhere else in scandinavian writer who has a lot of very interesting stories uh in the same general realm um uh, Acts of Service, I want to say, is the title by Lillian Fishman, would be another interesting one to look up. Uh, the Service by Frankie Mirren, I want to say, is the person who wrote that book, would be another one. Um, Sam by Allegra Goodman. There's a lot. Like I could, I could list off books for for quite a while that exist within this interesting kind of realm. Um, there's another book called Berlin that is by. Let me look at my shelf. Uh, B. Seton, I think is who it is. Yeah, B. Seton. Um, uh, Cleopatra and Frankenstein by Coco Mellers. Um, I, Who Have Never Known Men, would be another one that I would recommend people read. There is a lot. If you're just interested in more recommendations, too, you can email us and I will send you a list. Uh because I, there's probably 50 of them that I that I, I have on my shelves at home here. Um, Tell Me I'm Worthless by Alison Rumfitz, also really good. Anyway, I digress. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of very interesting things going on in fiction written by women right now that I would highly recommend people sort of take a look at or expand their knowledge of, you know. Um, not to be that person, but a lot of people who read heavy literary stuff like Pinchon, who are in our audience, kind of just read a lot of stuff by men, uh, which is not necessarily a negative thing, but it does limit your exposure to different ideas and different um, perspectives on life and living life. So, yeah, I, you know, it's always good to get some some additional perspective. Um, did anyone have any other questions or things they wanted to bring up? I have a quote to close if we're if we're already at that point. Yeah, uh, how dare you? How dare you talk down to men? <laughs> <laughs> Saying that it's inherently limiting to only read half the population of authors. Yeah, I know, right? What's wrong with you? Where, where do you get off, huh? Crazy. Yeah, that's why I try to overcorrect and I don't read anything by men. Um that works. All, that explains some of our conversations. Yeah, all of my observations about Pinchon have been made without actually having read Pinchon. Um, David Foster Wallace <laughs> is not my favorite author. I, I, I have not read Infinite Jest. Uh, certainly not multiple times. 
this is all just like a long game for me to get into a world heavily dominated by men and just expose them to books written by women. That's really all I'm here for. Well, now we know your ruse. Yeah, or I could be lying. You don't know. That's, yeah. See? It could be the long con. Yeah. False flag for the Meninists. Um, okay, yeah, if no one had anything else that they wanted to bring up or ask or anything like that, um, I have one final quote that I pulled. It was very hard to pick, like, quotes to pull from this book, because, um, this is one of my books that is heavily highlighted and annotated, um, but this is one of my favorite. Just, it it illustrates not just the, the quality of, of the writing in this book, which is stupendous. There, there's... I I could talk for hours about it, um, but it's also just an excellent breakdown of the emotional ideas that Julie Armfield is getting at. It comes from page eighty nine uh, in the UK first edition hardcover. After this, I sat on the floor of the kitchen and thought about Leah, about the shape of her feet, and the way she spoke about her father, the special voice she used to talk to cats. Her kind frown, her intonation, her fingernails. I thought about the time we kissed at the movies and a guy jerked off behind us and I complained to the management. I thought about fucking her on the floor of her uncle's bathroom when we were staying over before a wedding. I thought about the way she often liked to tell me what to do in bed. I thought about the day it first occurred to me that should she die, there would be no one in the world I truly loved. You can, I think... Love someone a very long time before you realize this. Notice it in the way you note a facial flaw, a speech impediment, some imperfection which, once recognized, can never again be unseen. Are you just now realizing that people die? Leah had said to me when I voiced this thought tucked up beside her on the sofa with my knees pressed tight into the backs of hers. Not people, I had said. Just you. Thank you, as always, for listening to Mapping the Zone. My name is Kate. I am joined by my lovely co-hosts. And we will see you in the next episode. Bye. See ya. Just any time. Yeah, whenever you're ready. Okay. <coughs> nice. You're welcome. Thanks. I yeah, appreciated that. <laughs> Just a little outtake for the listeners to, to have at the end of one of the episodes.